Our next speaker is Bruce Perens. Bruce Perens is one of the founders of the open source movement in software. He is best known as the creator of the open source definition, the rule set for open source and now open hardware licensing, and is one of the best known evangelists of open source. Perens spent 19 years writing software from the film industry, 12 of them at Pixar, and is credited in the films Toy Story 2 and A Bug's Life. Today, Perens advises corporations and government on issues of open source. Thank you very much. So, oh, can't see quite all of it. We'll live. So anyway, I'm Bruce, and I am an amateur radio operator. Hi, Bruce. And amateur radio is open hardware heaven because open hardware has been standard in amateur radio since the 1920s. And you just have to open a book on amateur radio and you see one of the schematics very much like the one you just saw. And um, so that's just the way that we have done things all, that all this time. I remember I got into ham radio in the 70s, and we were just teaching folks how to work with the newfangled printed circuit boards. And so before then, we had taken our Greenlee punches, and we had punched the hole for the tube socket and the chassis, and then wired up all the legs of the tube. And, and that's actually how I learned to do electronics. And so today I work with, of course, lots of open source organizations. Pretty much every company whose name ends in com is my customer. And if you notice some of them getting friendlier to open source, it's because I am a counselor to sick corporations and their disease is intellectual property. And so I, I hang out with them and I teach them that this open stuff is okay and they can do it and, and it won't make them lose all their money and I'll hold their hand. And they pay me five bucks a minute for it. So it kind of works out for everyone. And so, but a, a lot of real fun for me is working in organizations like AMSAT and Tapper. So Tapper has been making open source uh, hardware since 1980s. We made the original terminal node controller for packet radio. So if you did digital ham radio back when that started, it was a few guys who had designed that for Tapper. And let's see, can I advance my slide? No. <laughs> Someone help me. So, um, okay, here we go. It's just really slow. I wrote this on an open source platform, I swear. <laughs> okay. And so this isn't going to be a historical review of... Uh, <laughs> I am not pushing the button of free software. Rather, it's going to be... Um, what did we do wrong? I am totally out of control. This is really funny. So, um, okay, anyway, so which of these two statements is true? Open source is an astonishing success, and open source is a failure, and both are true. Open source has become 
a great force in the software market. Everyone uses it, most of them don't realize. And open source has failed to achieve some of its most important goals, things that could and it should still do. So one of the most fun things that I do today is I am working on open source hardware. And the latest project is one called Codec 2, which is digital voice. Uh, starting out for ham radio, but it'll end up on your phone, etc. And the reason we got into that was we didn't have a codec, and thus we started using proprietary codecs, and then we found that we couldn't really do any of those things that hams do with them. We, we couldn't make software that dealt with them without this $200 device with a little TI DSP in it and black box software that we couldn't look at. So I started working on that, and I was going to work on it with Tapper, the packet radio organization, but they were afraid my project would uh, piss off the DSTAR people. DSTAR is the uh, proprietary codec over the air. And so I had to go to AMSAT. So I had to affiliate my project with the world's oldest successful private space program. And that wasn't really a problem. And AMSAT is a great, great open hardware project, although we don't have too many people who make the space hardware. Um, there are a bunch of universities, etc. And the way that started was as soon as people started shooting stuff into space, the hams wanted to get involved because Arthur Clarke had invented space satellites that did radio. And so the way that rockets work is that rockets carry a fixed weight into space. So if your payload, your primary satellite that you're launching, does not weigh that much, then you launch a ballast weight into space because you have to carry a fixed weight. Now, launching a ballast weight into space is criminal stupidity. So we invented, yes, so we invented in the 60s space hitchhiking. We have the real hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy. And so um, there have been well over 60 launches of organizations affiliated by MSAT who are hitchhiking mostly on government and commercial payloads. About 40 of them have worked. We've had some astonishing failures. Uh, we had a million dollar satellite, collected all the money for it, and then we blew it up. And um, we had uh, SuitSat, which uh, we had this little problem with the antenna. And SuitSat 2, I'm going to be uh, having a party with at my next speech tomorrow because uh, the Tapper conference is actually on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And SuitSat 2, we lost the suit. So it's just going to be sat. And so uh, that's great fun. And, you know, you can work on that kind of stuff in open hardware, and you can be a real rocket scientist. Um, so here we go again. Okay. Which button am I pushing? This is incredibly stupid. Um, okay. Just push it for me, because this <laughs> Mac really doesn't like me. Oh, brother. 
Okay. So we did the impossible in open source. Okay, so my friends and I, we're going to make an encyclopedia, just a sort of a club, and we're not going to pay anyone, and we're going to write 3,422,000 articles, just in English, and we're going to kill Microsoft in Carta, the first Microsoft product actually killed by open source, and we'll kill most commercial encyclopedias. So what would the response of most people have been? Had you said that to them less than 10 years ago? Next slide, please. Okay, they would have said, you're on drugs, and I want some of what you're smoking. Okay, so <laughs> the next one is uh, this snotty-faced kid, oh, and his, his, his uh, friend from Mexico are going to supplant the operating system and GUI effort of ATT, IBM, and the billion-dollar Taligent Monterey and X Consortia, effectively replacing Unix across most of its own market. And after becoming the world's most famous Finn, one of them will affect the United States, but the Immigration and Naturalization Service will classify the other one as a farmer because he has no college degree and it will be hard to get him in. Finally, we shall. Okay, is it C they're using or is it LSD? Next slide, please. Okay, and uh, so we're going to have Microsoft talking so dirty about people who share the software that they wrote that they will lose all credibility even with their own staff and just to save their own credibility in the industry and regain the respect of their own employees, they will have to talk nicely about us. Meanwhile, a competitor run by someone who really did drop acid will roll past them and maybe us too. Next slide, please. Okay, so what is wrong with this picture? Much of the evolution of open source is filled with things. It would have been thought to be impossible a few years before they had happened. Obviously, we did not understand how the world really worked. Okay, what's changed? It's the interweb. Okay, the internet changes everything. And this is what you call an emergent phenomenon. No one, with the possible exception of Richard Stallman, who is, of course, a person whose shoulders were standing upon. And I said that at the UN, and he covered up his shoulders. It was so funny. <laughs> um, thought that this would happen. So next slide, please. And uh, OK, next time I'm plugging in. So we've met some really great goals. We turned the economics of software development on its head. We took a software industry that only understood competition and taught them to cooperate. And open source has successfully developed projects that could never have been capitalized. And yet they attain tremendous user communities once they exist. So we got to understand some things about the economics of software development that people just didn't think were so. We gained acceptance everywhere from courts to corporations. And I teach today continuing legal education classes. I'm not a lawyer. I teach lawyers how to do law concerning open source. So this is great fun. 
And all of this, you know, because I gave away my software. So it's just been a really fun life. We enabled a lot of people, both through liberty, giving them control over the software, and through gratis, giving it to them for free. Next slide, please. Okay. So we established that user-supported software is often the category leader in both quality and utility. The economic equivalent of open source development is most likely reached tens of billions. Dave Wheeler used to count this, and it's actually gotten too hard for him to do. Someone give him a grant so we can count it again. We enable, you know, lots and lots of people. Okay, next slide, please. Okay, so why did we win? Okay, it wasn't because Eric Raymond or Bruce had something new. It was because the world wanted this. They were ready for it. And it's because the internet enables a new economic paradigm of production. And I remember when I was younger, when something really strange happened, you would hear on the news, police believe this is the act of an isolated nut. Okay, in the age of the internet, there are no isolated nuts. Whatever kind of nut there you are, there are 50 nuts just like you on the internet, and you can find them, okay? And thus, you have more power than the average startup company to create stuff with those other 50 nuts. And individuals discover both professional and emotional benefits of this widespread collaboration. I remember I was on an airplane, and there were these two people older than me in front of me. They were retired, and they were talking about what they'd done on the Wikipedia. And they thought it sounded like Waikiki. They were so disconnected, but they had actually made articles and put them up. And so Wikipedia is actually open source for geezers. The way that works is that people get out of the industry, they retire, and they have this tremendous load of expertise which they wish to grant to the world and none of the world wants to listen to old fogies. So they put it on Wikipedia. And it is incredibly fulfilling for them. So all sorts of stuff like this happens. So companies and people discover also that collaboration on cost center or infrastructure software, that is all the software that your company makes that isn't what you do to make money. So for example, Amazon depends on web servers and they can afford to collaborate with Bertelsmann and Barnes and Noble on web servers, but some of the business differentiating things about the Amazon website like the recommendation system back when it was unique to Amazon, are things that they had to hold close. And just understanding that difference is a big part of teaching a company how it can work with open source. Next slide, please. So what did we learn? One thing, and you've heard it before, is that innovation is like produce. Holding on to it is a great way to waste it. Facilitating incremental innovation creates tremendous synergies, ones we, we did not understand would be possible. And the open source marketing paradigm, you know, the big problem people used to say with open source is that there is no plan. 
Okay, there's no one deciding what the roadmap of open source will be. Well, it was always true for the software market as a whole, which is a thing that we're comparable to. People were trying to compare open source to one company, which makes no sense. So what is the marketing paradigm that has made open source so successful? It is a massively parallel drunkard's walk filtered by a Darwinistic process. What the hell does that mean? Well, what it means is that everybody does their own thing, and then they put it up on the net, and they say, hello world, here's my project. And most of those projects die on the vine. And some of those projects attain communities who think they're cool and go on with them. So that is the Darwinistic filter, and it turns out that people will do things that no one planned and no one expected. And if you just have enough inventors, you end up inventing great things this way. And marketers, you know, strategic marketers and companies, they never had a crystal ball. If they did, they'd be at home clipping stock coupons. So this way works better. And also we learn the products that have no economic foundation, never could may still be very desirable, and we learned that there are a lot of indirectly financial ways that people benefit from open source. If you want to read about that, my testimony in Jacobson versus Katzer is one place to find it. Next slide, please. Okay, so other goals help a world population that increasingly works, communicates, learns, and votes through computers to be in control rather than being the control. This is the most important thing for open source and open hardware today because the world is not going in a good direction. And this is what Richard Stallman was talking about when he said, talked about freedom. And whether or not you like Richard, he is a genius and he saw all of this clearly in 1984, which is totally amazing. So people should be able to find out and control what the hardware and software they use does rather than be the ones done to. They should be able to control their own information completely. Those of them who are inclined to do so should be able to change the software themselves. Next slide, please. So people are increasingly slaves of their tools. That is the problem of the age. What has changed to make this so is that those tools contain embedded constraints upon the actions of the people who use them. And thus people increasingly live in a world of constraint. And what's the harm in being slave of a tool? Of course it is that you're slave to whoever controls that tool. Open source and open hardware must help the world's people to be master of their tools and of themselves. So Lamore said, we give to make ourselves better people. Let's also, next slide please, give to make other people better people. Okay, so is this so important? It is if you like democracy. There was an old Depeche Mode song, Princess Di is wearing a new dress. And, and the theme is a lot of, Okay, there are geezers in the audience, too. <laughs> and so there are a lot, of, um, a lot of lines about, you know, people are dying in India, all these bad things are happening with the world, and Princess Di is wearing a new dress. And that is what was in the news. So 
if you control the information that people get, you control their votes and you control how they feel politically. And it's a tremendous problem today. News and political discourse are mediated by software. Whether it's in your TV or your computer, we have digital rights management all around this to protect intellectual property. We must respect intellectual property. And thus, we trust an astonishingly few companies to be the inter intermediaries between information and the voter. Next slide, please. Okay, so why is this open source's job? It's a really big job. We are the only credible producer of software and now hardware that isn't bound to a single company's economic interest. We have no reason to believe that we can trust companies or governments or anyone else to do this job for us. Next slide. So what else should our goals be? Establish continuing legal freedom to create, modify, and redistribute open source software and hardware. It's a simple goal. Open source should be legal. Okay, it's not to a great extent today. We're at risk from laws that weren't directed at us when we weren't economically significant. Software patenting is a nightmare. And lawyers tell me, don't even talk about open source infringes on software patents. Okay, Windows infringes, Macintosh infringes, everyone infringes. If we had total enforcement of software patenting, there would be no software. Okay, the anti-circumvention law has an information control function, which is also very dangerous, and we open source is increasingly shut out of content access. Next slide. So what are the problems? Well, tremendously successful, open source is mostly not built a relationship with the common person and does not have their sympathy. We have to a great extent been used as a tool for controlling people. Consider all of these lock-type platforms like the cell phones, all based on Linux today, but uh, toting a uh, wireless uh, provider's rules, uh, enforcing something other than the customer's own interest. Unfortunately, we're helping to make people slaves to their tools. Next slide. So open source has not been able to protect its own future by reforming law that is hostile to it. Despite our popularity and our legal victories, our developers face greater risks today than they ever have. Next slide. So we haven't developed the sympathy for users that is manifested by Apple, but we've already achieved many things that would have been considered impossible at the time. We can do this as well. What this is going to take, unfortunately, that we've mostly not shown as a community is tremendous self-discipline in whatever subset of our community achieves it. Next slide. So which projects have best shown and most benefited from their sympathy for the user? Mozilla Foundation does this very well. Wikipedia is intrinsically more accept uh, accessible to the common person and then we get to Ubuntu. Next slide. So let's face it, lots of us don't even like users. You heard from Lamore. Okay, a good many of us do match the stereotype, not her, of emotionally impaired programmers, mostly the men. 
You know, that's one of the things that makes software so enticing to many of us. It's difficult to listen to someone who's contributed, this is what Lamour said, nothing to the effort, has no appreciation of your sacrifice, and still discusses your work with great umbrage. When our work gratifies only ourselves and our community, it's self-limiting as well. Now, I wanna say I worked so hard not to use the M word in this last line here, and then Lamour puts the F word all over her slides. Next slide, please. So, Mozilla, not Ubuntu. Ubuntu is definitely demonstrating the discipline that we need for open source to reach a common person. The problem is that Ubuntu is in the position of being an intermediary between the open source developer community and the rest of the world, as is Red Hat, other open source companies, sometimes even Microsoft, and their interests are not always ours. Next slide. So let's be honest about our business partners. We need to accept that our commercial partners must always put the interest of their business before all else. The interest of their commercial partners also governs what they do, which is why Linux distributions are not wor working to drain the swamp of software patenting because the companies that they are partners with, like IBM, aren't really for that. They can't really work for the best interest of open source. They must always strike a balance that's in their interest. And these problems are gonna be worse for open hardware. Next slide. There was a time when free software and open source clearly held a moral high ground, and that gave us some political progress that we're not making any longer. Consider the push for open standards and the fight against pan-European software patenting. We would not have won those today, okay? And we're losing ground on net neutrality. As commercial companies took the foreground in open source, we lost the moral high ground. Today, we're just another competitor. And these are lessons that we can learn in open hardware. Next. Okay, our intermediaries represent us. When open source is represented in a political forum today, it's often an open source company or one of their industry groups like Linux Foundation doing the talking. Those companies and the groups they've created represent their own interests. That's all that's fair to accept, expect of them and that's why they're wrong for the role. Our main tool in managing them is copyright. And that doesn't touch this problem. Next slide. Okay, working for free to make Mark Shuttleworth richer isn't very smart. Okay, that doesn't mean don't work on Ubuntu. It means that you should always keep track of whether what the community gets from Ubuntu and what it will get tomorrow is worth what you and others put in. And then you decide where your valuable work should go. Make sure your presence is known independently of Ubuntu. You did the work, not Mark Shuttleworth. Next slide, please. Just making a better platform than our competition is Ubuntu and its ilk are approaching Windows and user desirability is an insufficient goal if they end up being significantly proprietary. Just Windows from a different company. Same for Android which is, that's very much the case. There's nothing open about Android. And then we have users, users, Uber, users, Uber alles. It's a hollow philosophy just to get users if we're just giving the users the same stuff from a different vendor. Next slide. Okay, ultimately there will be companies that manufacture open hardware 
that they didn't design, just as Red Hat and Ubuntu, mainly then the software of others. Unlike software, open hardware licenses can use copyright mainly to control copies of the plans, not the manufactured product. And so we won't have control like the GPL has on software. We can still control firmware as we control software today. Next slide. Okay, so with what we've learned, what can we do to meet today's and future challenges? Next slide. Okay, the mobile app paradigm has succeeded economically so far because of the large early entrant reward for reasonably simple apps on a single platform, and they're even selling open source apps that the customers don't know are open source. Ultimately, apps must be front-end for content, and it's the content, not the apps, where the continuing value will lie. But paid content providers have shown a trend to eschew open source in favor of DRM-laden apps. Next. Next slide. We're going to skip that one because we're late. Okay, um, every problem that proprietary software has is duplicated in apps, but worse, because apps are meant to be ephemeral. ephemeral. Every problem that Microsoft had in the 80s and 90s is true for app stores and the proprietary platform network combinations that run them. So we are back where open source started today, and isn't that a shame? Open source can meet this challenge by changing the paradigm beyond web or apps, but will it? Next slide. The challenge for open hardware is that the trend is from generic platforms like the PC motherboard toward the single company, single network, highly controlled platforms with content DRM and the hardware subsidized by network tolls. This eventually leaves us with nowhere to run open source software. Can open hardware balance this trend? Providing an open source platform that's desirable to common people? If not, is it our destiny to live in a world of constraint? Next slide. So in closing, open source has achieved tremendous things that no one would have believed possible. We have boundless potential like open hardware lying before us. But we're also seeing some signs that we've peaked. Our antithesis the lockdown platform is beating us in lots of ways today. Which will it be? It's up to you folks. Thanks very much.